grateful to announce that we have some new tour locations coming up. Greenville, South Carolina, November 8th at the Peace Center. Huntsville, Alabama, November 19th at the Von Braun Center. And Atlanta, Georgia, November 29th and 30th at the Fox Theater. Tickets for these shows will be available this Wednesday, September 27th at 10 a.m. local time with the pre-sale code RATKING. General on-sale begins Friday, November 29th at 10 a.m. local. We also have some tickets left for Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, Norfolk, VA, Roanoke, VA, and Huntington, West Virginia. Get all your tickets through theovon.com slash T-O-U-R. Uh, to avoid uh, secondary sites. Today's guest is a presidential candidate for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Uh, He's an author. He's an attorney. He's an environmentalist. Uh, I'm grateful to have him return to the podcast to discuss his campaign and see what's going on. He's a dear friend, and I'm grateful for his time. Today's guest is Robert Kennedy, Jr. Thanks, man. Yeah, I feel pretty good. I, I got some vitamin D today. I went for a run, you know. I think I was feeling, like, overwhelmed. So sometimes when I feel like, even if I feel, if I feel anything too much, it's like I feel like if I do something in motion, it helps me, you know. And getting some vitamin D helps me, too. Yeah, move muscles, change the thought. Yeah. But I had the same experience yesterday where, I, you know, they had me scheduled like back to back all day. And I said, I just need to get out. And I I just canceled one of my appointments and I went out in the sun for an hour. And I just, it was transformative. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we forget that we're supposed to be plants like that, you know. Or that we're part, because are are humans part plants too, do you think? No, no. Although the microbiome has a lot of... Plants and it's, I guess it's part of our body and it's a plant, I suppose. But um, we are definitely, uh, we're a zoonotic species rather than a plant species. Dang. Yeah, sometimes I guess I feel like a plant. Um, or I don't know, if I sit by a window, I feel good. You know, if somebody comes up and smells me, if I smell good, I feel good, I guess. So that's kind of like a flower maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm losing my mind. Um, good to see you, man. You too. Yeah, you look great. You did. You look amazing. Well, I feel pretty good, man. I'm just uh, been staying pretty busy. I'm trying to think of what's been going on. Have you been in Nashville? Yeah, I've been over there a decent amount. You know, um, we just I, did, I couldn't b- believe how that is growing there. Yeah, and there's there's like 20 cranes above that city. They must have all the cranes from everywhere in the United States there. Yeah, it's been it's been busy. I mean, even since I just moved there like three years ago, it's like I'll go down streets now, and everything's everything's changing. It's really nice. One of the things that I like best there, I have the best neighbors there. My neighbors are really nice. Um, and it still has a really small, ta- it has a small town vibe. Like you couldn't cheat on your wife there. That's what I tell people. You could not do it. 
<laughs> I mean, you could, I think a lot of people have tried, but you could, it just, there's too much. It still has like that, a little bit of that Southern gossip vibe, you know? Yeah. You have like, you have like a, a little house there. You know? Yeah. I got me a little house in a neighborhood. It's pretty normal. Nothing too fancy. I mean, it's a nice home, but, um, it's nothing like, I don't have like a, uh, water slide or anything, you know, or anything like that, or like a, um, putting. I don't have an axe. Uh, yeah, I don't have, <laughs> yeah, I don't have an axe throwing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been good, man. It's been a nice change of pace. I feel a little bit more connected to just like regular society. Cause I think in LA, it's like a, di it's, it's just a different universe out here than like regular cities or towns in America for sure. Um, and there's so many people here, you know, I think people start to feel a little bit, I don't want to say expendable, but it's like some people, you know, you're, you're not going to see them ever again. So it, there's like a different amount of, um, value sometimes to the interaction that you have to put into it. You know, like in a smaller community, you have to have, you have to create a level of probably more respect for people and stuff. And like, um, it, whereas in a city, you're just going to, does that make any sense? Yeah, I remember uh, who was there's a writer for the New Yorker. I'm trying to remember his name, but he's kind of a philosopher, and he was talking about the um, that there's a formula actually that you know people are rude in in big cities uh, because the chance of them ever running into you again is is more remote. Whereas yeah. if you live in a small town, I've lived in. Montgomery, Alabama, which is really a small town, and uh, Hainville, Alabama, and then I lived in Deadwood, South Dakota, and you know a couple of other small towns in my life, and everybody's nice, and when you're driving down the road in your pickup truck, everybody who passes you on the road waves their hand like that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, he was saying, uh, he was telling the story that, um, uh, that Mother Teresa, when she came to New York, she tried to start one of her little, you know, con monasteries to take care of the poor in New York, mm -hmm. and that um, they eventually ended up closing it because they didn't want to put an elevator in the place, and they said, no, we'll just carry the sick people up the stairs ourselves. I love that idea. Yeah, but in New York, they, the public health agencies wouldn't let them do it, so they said, okay, we're leaving. But she, at one point, Mayor Koch, had a uh, had a heart attack. Mayor Koch, yeah, okay. Ed Koch was a he was uh, the mayor of New York for a long, long term mayor, and he had a heart attack and he nearly died. And she went to visit him in his hospital bed, and which he thought it was a great kindness because you know she's a Catholic and he's a Jewish mayor, and it just was a you know it was kind of a spiritual act. But when she was up there. She asked him, "Can you get me a parking place in front of my uh, in front of my building?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as a joke or not? no? She wanted a parking place, but it kind of. I mean, she is Mother <laughs> Teresa. Well, of course, you would give her a parking place if you got. Oh, there he is. She, there he is, with Mother Teresa. That's hilarious. So uh, <laughs> that's great, dude. Hey. But she, you know, it's just the idea that she had an angle. You know, once you go to New York, you always got to have an angle. Yeah. And maybe it is you're just like, and I always feel like L.A. is kind of like an air. It always feels like the whole city feels like a little bit like an airport to me. It's like I feel like I never leave the airport here. Like it just the whole it just it feels like this thoroughfare of just people going in and out, you know? Yeah. Um, sometimes I start to feel like America starts to feel like that sometimes. I think it starts to feel to a lot of people like. 
Um, it almost feels like a shell company sometimes. Like a shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> or like a, it feels like a, an LLC for like big biz. It starts to sometimes feel like an LLC for like big business. Yeah. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's what it's becoming. And one of the things that like I, I'm talking about a lot now is this, um, you know, the, is housing prices. I Housing uh, prices, you said? Yeah. You know, I was um, – I tried the Monsanto case in San Francisco with a big team of attorneys, and we tried three cases in a row. So that we had about twenty thousand cases. And the way that you know the, this kind of um, uh, multi-state litigation and works, the case was that they were it was poisonous, right? Yeah, it was it was causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, so we had enough science to prove that it could cause on. It did. It could cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then we had, we ended up having fifty thousand people who had gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and but the way that you try the case, you try them one at a time until if you win three or four in a row, then the company says, then Monsanto says, okay, now we know what the value of the case. So the first case we got two hundred eighty-nine million. Yeah, I just saw this brought that up. Wow. Yeah, the second case we got. Um, and so that was one client, and there that suit. was one. That was uh, Dwayne Johnson, who uh, who's not the Rock. You're not talking about him. Not the Rock. This was an African American school superintendent. He, you know, his job was to spray the weeds on mm. the property and keep the mow the lawn and do that on a school, public school. And he was he had a backpack on. Um, uh, sprayer mm -hmm. and it leaked all the time and he began getting lesions on his back oh, and yeah. he called up Monsanto. He called them three times and said, could this be from the, cause it says safe as aspirin, nothing could happen to you. And it has pictures. It had pictures on the label of people spraying their weeds, wearing like Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. So it was implying that you don't have to take any protection with this stuff cause it's so safe. Wow. Oh, he thought he felt like it was coming from that, from that, and it turned out to be non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was precancerous lesions, and but they would never return his phone call, and they knew it, mm. and they just didn't want to, you know. So they they uh, they sandbagged him, and he um, and and he he was the sweetest guy when we got him on the stand. He was married to this beautiful uh, Hispanic woman. They had fallen in love the first time they saw each other at community college, and oh. they had this wonderful marriage. And he couldn't sleep in the bed with her anymore because he had so many lesions on his oh. body, and you know, it was just he wouldn't go in the swimming pool because you know if, if anybody saw him in the pool, they would think they were going to get a disease. So his life was it was just so miserable and. The jury loved him. They gave him two hundred eighty-nine million. Two hundred eighty-nine million, and then the next one, I forgot. We we got. I, I think we got around three hundred million. The second, the third one, we asked for a bit. Was a couple mm -hmm. who were both gardeners, home gardeners, and they brought their dog with them to home garden. They had a Labrador retriever. The Labrador died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. What? He got it the same time they did. The couple both got it the same they time, and the dog got it. Mm -hmm. The dog died first, and then um, the uh, you know then they were uh, they were really sick. We asked the jury for a billion dollars, and we had a big argument about it. You know, what do you ask the jury? Because you don't want to ask them for too much, because then they think you're overreaching, and they may punish you. Okay. 
uh, the one guy who was arguing, doing the closing argument, a, a lawyer called Brent Wisner, very young lawyer, um, but really brilliant. And he uh, and we were all saying, you should ask him for three hundred million. That's what the other juries were paying us. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to ask him for a billion. I feel like the jury likes us. They came back with two point two billion. No, -uh. so we asked him for a billion. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> So they were pissed at Monsanto they as well, They were so huh? angry because we also showed that. That's the lawyer right there who just walked by, Brent Wisner. Wow. Um, God, I got to pick up some Monsanto on the way home. Yeah, you got to go to law school, Theo. You know. Yeah, one or the other, man. I got to, you know, <laughs> I got to get a case like this. But anyway, I, I didn't mean to go off on this, but what I was saying is, when we were trying these cases, we were trying one after the other. Mm -hmm. So I ended up spending like the better part of a year in San Francisco. And every morning when I was in San Francisco before court, I would go down to the courthouse, to the uh, to the gym mm -hmm. in Union Square. Union Square is the center of San Francisco and it's the center of commerce. It has all the big, um, you know, American, iconic American stores like uh, Macy's and Bloomingdale's and uh, Nordstrom and Gap and oh, yeah. Old Navy and mm -hmm. Levi. And then it has all the foreign stores like Prada and De La Valle and uh, Gucci and Ferragamo. Hermes, yeah, Ferragamo and uh, Burberry and all of those. Oh, it's like Fifth Avenue. It's fancy. It is the Fifth Avenue yeah. of, and people come from Asia all over to do their shopping there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went back three weeks ago, and it was astonishing. Those houses are, or those stores are all boarded up. Mm -hmm. They're every one of them is closed. Wow, and they're closed because all of the homeless on the street making the, the chaos that's going on in the street in San Francisco makes people feel unsafe. Well, yes, oh. some guy started a, started a pop-up bar. Do you see that? A guy started a bar. Where? Oh. A homeless the... bar. You, see if you can bring that up, Nick? Yep, I got it. Yeah, look at this. I mean, I think you're starting what? to see, yeah, people are like, well, I'm so homeless. There's obviously no zoning going on. So why don't I open up a Dave & Buster's type of place? Denver Homeless Camp features pop-up bar. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's wacky. Let's see, a decked out open air. There you go. See, look, you can see the bottles right there. They have a kind of V, I wouldn't call it VIP, but I would call it maybe HIVIP. It looks a little <laughs> dicey over there. Sorry. <laughs> and I shouldn't have said that, man. But, yeah, you shouldn't um, have said that. But, but they, you know, it's it, it, a lot of people have been ill. and um, But yeah, this is, I mean, I think people are just going to start starting businesses, you know? Yeah, I like mean, I wonder if that's what it gets the, to. Is the tent where the owner lives, or I think the tent? I don't know. That could be the pop-up speakeasy, which features lounge chairs, umbrellas, and astroturf, has taken over the sidewalk at Twenty Third and Champ uh, Champa Streets, which the city's growing homeless population has turned into an encampment. I love this kind of stuff. So, um, so I. We're hearing there was an open bar. That's what the Denver Police Patrol Division Chief said. Um, anyway, yeah, I think, but at least it's evolving. It's not just homeless people just being homeless. At least I think you're going to start to see mom and pop businesses out there, you know? Well, here's what, you know, my son actually, because I, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of assumptions about why people are homeless. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, there's 525,000 homeless people in this country. And, but 
50% of the unsheltered homeless are in California. Okay. So California only has 12% of the population, but it has 50% of the, of the unsheltered homeless. And unsheltered homeless means homeless that don't have a place to sleep at yeah, night? Yeah, it's, okay. it's people who are you know on the sidewalks. Like freelance, yeah. Right, or they're in shelter, you know, they're... Yeah, like free range. Yeah. So... Um, my here's my assumptions that homelessness is linked to drug addiction. It's linked to mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, it's linked to, you know, poverty and that people are in One of the reasons there's so many homeless in California is that everybody knows that San Francisco has this very generous kind of giving attitude uh, towards social services. And so if you're homeless anywhere else in the country, you, you know, you, you'd like to move to good weather. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be in New York sleeping on a grate in the middle of winter when it's snowing. Get on a greyhound and come out to San Francisco and, you know, um, and, and celebrate. Right? Yeah. And I also had heard this, which turns out not to be true, that, that, in some cities like Dallas or Nashville, if you are homeless, that they uh, instead of putting you in jail, they give you a bus ticket to San Francisco. Oh wow! So I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway. So my son turned me on to this writer called my son Connor, who you, who you know, mm -hmm. um, Matthew Desmond, and Matthew Desmond has written these books on homelessness and he's done these studies on homelessness and and they in, in San Francisco they actually went around and interviewed thousands and thousands of homeless wow. people and what they found is that um that the the people who who are homeless in San Francisco are from San Francisco hmm. and they're from California and they weren't they didn't come from somewhere else so it's not a lot of people yet bust in or transplants or whatever right he also says this that it it has it it has very little to do with drug addiction. You know, the states like West Virginia has much more drug addiction than San Francisco, and yet it doesn't have a homeless problem. So West Virginia has much worse poverty problem than San Francisco. San Francisco actually, I think it's the richest city in the country. I may be wrong, but I think it's the richest. Hmm. And um, and it doesn't so. And in terms of mental illness, you you have to assume they're the same. Yeah, you know, there's no reason. But but also Detroit. Detroit has much higher drug addiction, much higher poverty, and it doesn't have a homeless, uh, problem. homeless problem. And what Matthew Desmond says is the reason for homeless. One reason. One reason is housing prices. It all has to do with with housing prices in California. You know, we have the highest housing prices in the country um, here in L.A. where we are. The average home costs eight hundred fifteen thousand dollars, which means you have to earn two hundred fifty thousand dollars to be able to pay to, to be able to pay for that. And home. why do they get so high? Like, uh, is it demand that makes them so high? Uh, I'm going to tell you this: the, the average home in our country two years ago was two hundred fifteen thousand. Mm -hmm. The today it's four hundred thousand. And the interest rates have gone from three to seven percent. So kids today, like your kids and my kids, are never going to buy a home. Hmm. You know, it used to be. <laughs> but if so, if they're not going to buy a home, yeah, and the median price of homes sold by realtors has risen sharply since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, and and here's why this is happening. It, there's three big companies: uh, BlackRock, 
State Street yeah. and Vanguard. These are the biggest companies, you know. And they have a monopoly on a lot of the housing market, right? They, well, what they do, they, they own everything. Okay. Including they own each other. So it's really just one big company. And and BlackRock, that it has $10 trillion under management. The GDP of California is three or $10 trillion. The GDP of California is $3 trillion. And so they're three times the size of California. California economy is the fifth largest in the world of all nations. So w w when you have that much control, can't you just make your own universe? They can't yeah. you? Well, so, so they own, those three companies own 88% of the S&P 500. Wow. So they basically just own everything. And now that what they've decided is they want to own every single family home in our country. So they're, that, and, and they're now on track. There's now on trajectory. If we continue it on this trajectory, they will own, the corporations will own 60% of the uh, single family homes in our country. And they're, you know, they, they pay nothing for money. So they're like, if you're the richest person in the, in the country, their BlackRock's cost of money is 30% lower than you. So you, you know, when right. so you, they're competing against our kids and your kids. Why is it so different? They want it now. They want to own everything. So well, why I, is the percentage of the cost of the value of, of borrowing? Oh, money? because they are that their credit is so impeccable. Oh, I see. They have like nine hundred. Yeah. Oh. So they they got the better than the best credit rating. I think I got six seventy or something. <laughs> I don't know. What's okay? I don't know. Yeah. But isn't that like privatized communism or something? That's what it feels like. Well, yeah, it's like socialism for the rich and, you know, this this barbaric, merciless, ruthless, savage capitalism think, for the poor. Yeah, do you think it, <laughs> there's some trickle-down effect of that that makes people feel like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was talking, we had this guy, John Vervecki on, and he talks a lot about meaning and stuff like that, you know? And he said that people feeling like they're part of a country or they they have like a part of a home, you know, part of a group, it, it it creates a lot of meaning for them, you know, just in their life. Well, yeah. And I think I noticed even with my own, like, probably like our parents and stuff, I think a lot of them were very like pro-America and like, you know, they had family members that died for our country and they you know, it meant something to them to be part of America. And then now I think a lot of them see this kind of unfolding or like kind of the flag kind of like fraying at the stitching, you know? And I think it's very scary because if you don't, have, if you start to feel like you don't have your country, then I think then you start to feel like, okay, it's every man for himself in a way. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And you know, and you're absolutely right. There's a poll that came out three weeks ago that showed that in 2013, kids between 18 and 35 years old, that 85% of young Americans um, said they were proud of the United States. And then a, a, another poll, the same poll, came out three weeks ago that wow. showed that only 17% of kids say that they're proud of to be a and I said, we're really, you know, devastating. But one of the things that you were saying, I think is true, that if you own a home, you care more about your community. You care about the schools. You know, you care about the police. Oh, that's you a great point. You care about the hospitals. You take care of your garden. You know, you make it look nice. Yeah, you, you might be more likely to help your neighbor. Exactly. Because you're there. You're part of the community. And turning us all into, you know, and you it, you also are, are a participant in the capitalist system because 
if you own a home, you have equity. Yeah. Which means, like, let's say you want to start a business, even like a tiny business, like buying, you know, buying a sewing machine. Yeah, doing sewing. What else can you, we do? You can do, or you know, if you want to start a restaurant, popcorn, something, like a caramel corn. Exactly. Something like That's that. A great idea. Yeah. Thanks. And um, but you could get a loan. You can get a loan, right, on your house, and so you you have an entree into the capitalist system. Yeah, and you make you because then you're always po- everything's possible. You could sit down with your family at night and be like, "Hey, mom and dad are thinking about doing this business. What do you guys think?" And maybe your son's proud of you, and it creates excitement in, in your house. You know, and even if like I remember, my mom went to law school and she couldn't do it because she had too many kids and it was too much work. But I was still always proud of her that she tried to do it. You know, like I think. Yeah, having the the financial ability to do stuff like that is just so important, man. And then otherwise you feel, yeah, if you're just a renter, if everybody's a renter, you don't care. Nobody, you just feel like you're like a renter by force. Like you don't even have a choice to be a renter, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's kind of scary. How do we battle against that? And is it something that a president can do or a political official can do? Or it's something that, how do you, how do we turn reverse that? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, there, there's parts of their, um, of, of what they're doing that, yeah, a president can deal with it. For example, they own all the packing companies. So there's only four meat packing companies oh, and, yeah. and those companies have a stranglehold on farmers and consumers. And they should have been prosecuted a long time ago for antitrust. But because BlackRock is so powerful, nobody will touch them. Wow. And so... That's a dark art, huh? Yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, what they're doing is they're just they're just strip mining the wealth and equity from the American middle class. Yeah. And, and you I, see that, you know... Yeah, it's sad. And how do we... How do you, Who is it? Who is BlackRock? The head of it is uh, is the CEO is a guy called Larry Fink. He's also on the board of directors of the World Economic Forum. Mm. So, in the World Economic Forum, you know, is meets in Davos. It's a, a billionaires' boys club. Oh, they Larry meet in Davos. Fink, huh? They meet in Davos every year, and they try to figure out what um, th- their plans are for the rest of humanity. Are they greedy? I would say they're they. They have a bad reputation for very self-serving policies. Their big policy is called the Great Reset. Mm. And what here's Klaus Schwab says famously, he says, under the Great Reset, you will have no, you will own nothing, but you will be happy. So that's what, so that's what they believe. Yeah, that's so they do they have believe. a belief. Their belief yeah. is that you will own nothing, but you'll be happy. All of us will own nothing, right. but they will <laughs> because they will own everything. <laughs> and they may be a little happier. Who knows? Wow. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you um if you need therapy or you've considered therapy, it's it's okay to try it out. I've tried so many therapists. You know, it takes you a while sometimes to find the right one, but when you do, it's a good fit and it feels good. BetterHelp can help. That's right. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a break from your thoughts if they're bothering you with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Theo today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, BetterHelp.com Theo. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. The weather's getting cooler, and that means it's time to, bu- to bundle up. Get you some stockings on. I got, look at that legging. Get you a legging on, daddy or mama. Legging up. Get you a hat, scarf, whatever. Ibotta, they can help you do it. That's right. Ibotta gives you cash back on winter coats, hats, gloves, scarves, anything, actually. Groceries, produce, personal care, pantry goods. Just download the Ibotta app. The average Ibotta user earns $100 per year. That could cover the cost of of a shopping trip, new school supplies, a Thanksgiving turkey. Get that big bird. Other apps give you points that don't amount to much. With Ibotta, you get real cash back that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. Just download the Ibotta app now and use code Theo to start earning real cash back. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app. That's I-B-O-T-T-A and use code Theo. That's Ibotta, I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use code Theo. Start getting cash back today. So how do we stay positive? (laughs) How do you, what do you do to stay positive when things like this come into your brain? Because I think a lot of people that, it, uh, I mean, this is why you have people that start to go to conspiracy theories. This is why you have people that start to look like uh, for alternate people are looking for hope. Really, a lot of times in a conspiracy theory, people are also looking for hope. They're looking for something that shows them that something that's out of what everything feels like could be possible, right? Um, do you? Uh, well, do you? Let, let me ask you this: Do you consider yourself a conspiracy theorist? No but I consider myself open to curiosity. You know, Um, I think, yeah, I consider myself open to curiosity. I think it would be silly not to listen to possibility. And I think some of the, it's sometimes it's the curious guy who at first people are like, this guy's bananas, who ends up being bananas foster, you know, <laughs> which is good if you've had it or not. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, it's pretty That's good. One of my I'll favorites. say that. Dude, one of my, I used to work at this at this restaurant and one of my coworkers, he's like, man, I hate seeing bananas foster on the menu because I was raised in a foster home and it makes me sad. <laughs> not ridiculous? Well, yeah. <laughs> like just to equate like bananas foster and being raised <laughs> in a foster home. But I was like, but I bet he still had some every now and then. And I think it made him feel pretty good. But, um, but yeah, I think, would you ask me about uh, well, it? Is I, good, you, I was it? asking about conspiracy theories. Yeah. I, I don't think, I, well, I think since to me, since the new, like the news started to get compromised, it feels like a few years ago. And I'll, one thing I do like using is that word compromise. That's kind of like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist word, you know? But I feel like when I was a, when I was a child, it felt like the news was real, and it and it was like this is the news, and it was honest. I don't know if it yeah, was that could have been me romancing it too, but it felt like that. And then at a certain point, which feels like about maybe ten years ago, the news started to become more yeah different. Did you notice that in your life? Yeah, I did, and I watched it happen because originally the like the the news, um, you know they. They going back to when they invented radio in 1928. They passed a law that was called the Fairness Doctrine. It was called the you know Communi- Communications Act, and they said um, you that all 
they did a, a bunch of things. They said nobody could monopolize the news. So now there's five companies that own all the TV, all the radio, yeah. all the newspapers, and most of the internet content providers. And they didn't want that to happen because they thought then, you know, these large corporations will control what we're thinking because they're going to control the information flow and that's bad for democracy. Oh, they said, you you know, you can own no more than eight radio stations mm -hmm. and you couldn't own a newspaper and a radio station or a television station the same. That sounds like a good choice. That sounds like very, that seems fair to me. Yeah, they wanted a diversity of ownership. It was called the Fairness Doctrine. But they also oh. said, if you... If you if you're using the public airwaves, which mm -hmm. means radio or television, mm -hmm. that if you make a statement, you need to give the other side a, a chance to respond, and you also need to put the news on every day at times when Americans are uh, likely to be at home to see it. So they, oh, that's they in order to oh. Like NBC did not own that airwave. It it had a license to use it, and mm -hmm. it could only use it if it benefited the public interest. The way that it did that is it said, okay, you're going to create a news division. The news divisions always lost money, but they were willing to pour money in because it was the only way they could hold on to their license. And they made a guy who Wait, explain that part to me. Sorry. I'm, uh, that's where I've... See, what they could say is well, you can you can use a um, the airwave to, to make money by entertaining people, mm -hmm. right? But you have to tell the, the real news, the authentic news, the important news that affects policy decisions that Americans have to make about their government. Okay. And you have to do it every day at a time when all Americans are going to be home, are likely to be home. So they, that's why we had a six o'clock news hour. It's also radio stations. If you probably, I don't know if you remember this or not, but it used to be even the top 40 music stations had a news break like every 15 minutes. There was mm. a short news break where they would tell you the news. Paul Harvey, remember him? Exactly. Good day. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they had to do that. That was a legal obligation. And oh, the, wow. And, and the news divisions w were separate from the rest of the operations, and they were untouchable. So they'd bring some, you know, really uh, credible figure like Newton Minow or oh, had Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley and John Chancellor, these guys who were, you know, total integrity people and everybody, the most credible man, the most, um, the most believed credible man in America was Walter Cronkite. Cronkite. yeah. And so, and all of those newscasters were people of extraordinary integrity. Then what happened is Ronald Reagan, when he ran for president in 1980, he had the support of the uh, big studio heads in California because he'd been the California governor. They wanted to abolish the fairness doctrine so they could get their hands, so they could consolidate the entire media and under monopoly control. And he had the Christian right and they, the Christian broadcasting stations did not want to do, you know, the fairness. They didn't want to show the other side because they didn't want to show Satan's side of the argument, oh. right? So they all wanted to get rid of the fairness doctrine. And so Reagan came in and uh, and appointed a guy, I think his name was Tom Wheeler, to run um, the FCC, the Federal Communication, and they threw out the Fairness Doctrine. Wow. And at that point, you saw this huge consolidation where they started buying up everything. You also saw the news divisions were told, okay, you know, we don't, we don't really need you to 
have integrity anymore. We need you to make money. Mm. So the news divisions became profit centers. And so you saw more and more news that was not really news. It was, you know, about Brad and J-Lo and it was entertainment. Yeah. It was stuff to get eyeballs to make people and violence and yeah. war and, you know. Um, and so you saw this deterioration where from the highly credible people on the news to people that you have today who are just, you know, propagandists for the government and yeah. for the pharmaceutical companies. Muppets, man. Yeah, the people people turn into <laughs> Muppets. Did um, but so, so whenever they, so the it was Christian activism that made them end up making them it, repeal it, that. It was a combination of things. The the Christian broadcasters, for good reason, you know, the, they had good reason. They didn't want to tell because, like for example, yeah, give me an example. I'll of that. give you an example that that um, NBC. I think it was NBC, it was either NBC or ABC was having advertisements, were selling advertisements for Mustang, which is the automobile. Oh, yeah. That Stang, at that, baby. Yeah. At that point, it was the biggest gas-guzzling automobile. And so the the ad, an asthma society of America. They hated Mustangs? Yeah, they didn't like Mustangs because oh, of Oh, come on, dude. So they sued. If you have asthma, if you get a Mustang, you got a chance with the ladies, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> but if you just show up with asthma, dude, it's a wrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a good selling point. Yeah, asthma has one speed, dude. <laughs> you know? Sorry, go on. So they, they wanted to do an ad saying Mustangs are bad because they're making us, you know, they're making us have asthma attacks. And, they, and the, the network didn't want to do it. They said, no, you know, because they... Right, we want to sell Mustangs. We want to sell Mustangs. So they they told the, the Asthma Society, you can't, you know, we're not going to let you, we're not going to sell you ad space. So they sued, they went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, you got to, you got to allow them to tell both sides. And they upheld the fairness doctrine. So you, if you applied that to Christian broadcasting and said, you got, you're using a public airwave. Right. You know, if there's atheists out there who yeah. want to give their side of the story, right? Maybe you'll you have to do that. So they didn't want to. Wow. They didn't want to do that. So they were, you know, and you can see the rationale. Yeah, and then also that leans <laughs> into more like towards yeah things being able to create monopolies. Then it seems like you know. Like, yeah, well, the monopoly exactly, and now where we are, where we are today. Where well, it's sad. Every city you go yeah. to, like I go to a city. If you you go as a comedian, you go to do radio sometimes before and. You know, uh, it used to be you had kind of a local radio station, and now all of them are, or most of them are kind of clear channel, you know. And I'm not denouncing clear channel, I don't, but they're all like usually like part of a bigger group, you know. And you can't find like a local newspaper anymore. Like that used to be like part of the community, like getting yourself in the newspaper. You would get like a little trophy for, you know, you didn't do nothing really. Maybe you found a missing person or something and they would put you in the newspaper or something, you know, but it was like, you kind of got to see like everything that was going on in your community, like baseball scores for little league games. I think things that made you feel attached to your environment, you know, and uh, they don't have that anymore. It's like, everything's just too big now to get it to fit into like, um, smaller communities, you know, or maybe yeah. you'll get a paper like once a week now or something, you know, it's just different. No, I, you know, I agree a hundred percent with that. I think that's, you know, and I think there's a real appetite for local news. People want to know what the, you know, yeah. what happened on the baseball. I mean, like, you know, I grew up reading about, you know, kids who I was playing, you know, sports with. Yeah. 
right? And, um, and you'd read about them in the local papers. They were heroes to you. Yeah. That's how you had local heroes. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, now it just feels like they want all your heroes to be like from the Marvel universe or you're not even allowed to have a hero anymore, you know? Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm romancing that a little bit, but I definitely notice it when I go home. I can't find like the local news and see kind of what's going on. And then, so then you're not attached to it. You don't really. And wh where do you, you consider home Nashville? I'm from uh, Louisiana, from Covington, Louisiana. So, but. Um, is Covington, is that a, is that in the Delta or something? North? No, Covington is south of the Delta. It's kind of like, uh, let me see, southwest of the uh, Delta. Yeah. Covington is over there. We had, I'll tell you something neat about Covington. Well, we have the tallest statue of Ronald Reagan, and you're welcome to come see it whenever you want. Really? Yeah. And Michael Landon was supposed to come there one time, but he couldn't make it. That's Michael Landon? He was supposed to stop in. He didn't make it, though. And that's a big selling point for that. Yeah, Michael Landon was almost here, <laughs> I guess. It's a pretty big, look at that statue, though, buddy. Oh, I can't tell how big it is. It's bigger than the trees, though. Yeah, it's 10 feet tall. Or it could be, somebody said it's even 12 feet tall, but I think they, somebody had a bad ruler on them. But um, also, Lee Harvey Oswald went to our middle school there uh, for a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. And what else? Um, the Tulane Primate Facility is there, and they tested the uh, polio vaccine. They actually made the polio uh, vaccine that ended up giving cancer to a lot of women to, like, cervical cancer. But, yeah, um, that's, it had a virus, and a monkey virus in it called SV40. Yeah, that's where they tested it at. Yeah. And some of the monkeys got out when I was a kid, and we got to get out of YMCA summer camp to help them look for them, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Is that true? Yeah. They had you a Kenny Rogers Roasters, and we're out there wrangling chimps with a couple of local police. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? Um, but anyway. Yeah, there's actually, I, you know, there's a book. Um, you go to the escape right there. Oh, Wow. There's a book called Mary's Monkey. Yeah. And it's about the, you know, the... the uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey, is that it? Maybe it's just yeah. Mary's Monkey. Dr. Mary's Monkey, Dr. yeah. Dr. Mary's Monkey. And it's about the, uh, the secret lab. It's about the Kennedy assassination, but it's about the Tulane lab. And uh, there were people involved in that lab who were, you know, who were involved with... Lee Harvey Oswald and um, did you go down a lot of rabbit holes ever like kind of searching like just about information well, about well you know I like I feel assassinations like I'm really, and stuff I'm really evidence-based so I don't make any presumptions but I I read everything yeah uh, but it, and if it's that book is actually very very well researched and very interesting yeah yeah I think I don't know if I've read all of it but I've definitely read a decent amount of it um yeah. Man, yeah, congratulations. Since I saw you last, you were running for election. Yeah. That's cool, man. Uh, you didn't see that coming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, because I think I almost think I asked you about it. We'll have to go back and see if there was a clip where I asked you if you would at some point. Because I just yeah, thought you were so well-spoken. I didn't have any intention. Um, and, uh, was it hard to, did you have to convince your family that it was okay for you to run? Well, the one person I had to convince was my wife. Yeah, yeah, that's a good My start. kids were like, uh, uh, I actually went up to Boston, and they, I had three boys who were in Boston at that point. And I went out and, and took them out to lunch, and they were like, they weren't like, okay, go get them, Dad. They were like, okay, this is what you, you know, buy the ticket, take the ride, you know. And they, they were not... Um, you know, I think now they're much happier about it. Yeah. Because the way it's kind of turned out.
but they didn't know what was going to happen at that point. And then Cheryl, who you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, it took she took a lot of convincing. But what happened is, I was you know I thought at one point because they were censoring me. In fact, you got you know yeah we got censored. Got our, our episode yeah. got taken down. That's right. And yeah. then miraculously <laughs> got put up again. How did that happen? Like a month ago. Oh, it came back up on YouTube. One of the episodes that had been taken down came back up on YouTube. I mean, it had been gone. Bobby, it had been gone. And then it just showed back up. That's weird. Well, we sued them. But I doubt if that's the reason. Because they're YouTube? Still, yeah, they're still taking our stuff down. Wow. Good for you. That's cool when you're a lawyer because then you can sue somebody if you need to. That's a great idea. You yeah. guys actually made a wager whether or not that episode would be taken down, RFK, uh, he said it would be, and Theo bet him that it wouldn't. <laughs> oh, dang. How much was it for? <laughs> yeah, how much was that for? We have the clip. <laughs> One sec. All right. It's going to get interesting. <laughs> we'll see if anybody's getting paid this week right here, brother. God, this could be bad. Well, whatever it is, Bobby, we'll donate it to your campaign, okay? Uh, um, um, how have campaign donations been? Oh, you have the clip. good week. You know, we were at the Eric Clapton concert last night. Well, let's play this question. A question that came okay. in actually right here from a guy uh, for you, Bobby. That's right. Is on. this live? This is not live. None okay. of this is live, and this question isn't live. This is yeah, all because I want to make sure you have an option of not playing this <laughs> podcast video. No, I don't. I think we're okay. Yeah, I mean, we. You know, I'm generally curious, and I think I'm I, worried about your career. Deal, that's why. Oh, thanks. Well, the good, I feel like I own my own career until, like, I don't need a Hollywood career, you know? But it's definitely, I worry about, like, my career of, like, I guess, maybe, like, YouTube canceling us or people saying that we can't do this anymore, you know? Yeah. That's the scary part. Is this on YouTube? Yeah, this will be on YouTube. So, but our last one stayed up. Okay, well, let's make a bet. Bet you five bucks. Well, inflation's happening a lot. Let's make it ten. Right, we were ahead of the curve. Good question right here from somebody that came in. Yeah. Um, but anyway, last night you asked about donations. We got uh, yeah, we were at the Eric Eric Clapton, and there's Steve Stills, Eric Clapton, and we met and did that at a private home in Brentwood, and nice. uh, we got two point two million dollars of that. No way. Um, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're doing well on donations. Um, how was it? Because you were kind of like looked at as like a guy that was like a nutcase by some people, right? Yeah. Not by me. I thought well, you were definitely curious and active, you know, and I knew you as a person. So I knew that like you seem like a like as normal as a guy could be to me, you know? Were you surprised when people started to get on board though with you? Like, I, cause I remember I listened to you. I mean, I, I, I listened to you on Rogan and I thought it was one of his best episodes. I thought it was just, I remember you thanking him for letting him, letting you speak. Right. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I remember just listening and I just got a clear layout of exactly kind of where you'd been and how you ended up where you were, you know? Um, and I thought it was just awesome. And I thought that was such a great interview. Did things start to turn after that? Or when did things kind of start to turn, do you feel like? The, the big turn for me was a podcast I did before that called All In. You know that podcast? Mm -hmm. It's David Sachs and it's a bunch of um, tech people uh, who are, you know, leaders in the, in the kind of tech, Bitcoin, uh, uh, community. They're, they're San Francisco-based 
Okay, you know, I see financial right here. David Friedberg. Okay, and it's very very popular. Mm. I mean, I I cannot I, I I can't tell you how popular. The reason I know how popular it is is I almost every day somebody comes up to me and says I saw you on that. Wow no matter where I am in the country. And it's a very weird demographic because it's not, it's all kinds of people. Like it'll be a, like an old lady and, you know, young college kids. And um, that's amazing. I'm going to yeah. check this out. All in with Shamath, Jason, Sachs, and Friedberg or Friedberg. Um, and so, so they, you know, I went on there and there's, mm -hmm. there's four guys and they all kind of grilled me. Yeah. And uh, and then you know then uh, Rogan brought me on. Megan Kelly was really good with me. She she had me on about three times when you know nobody would let me on. And then Fox started letting me on a lot, and so I I could go on my you know the thing is that my I get a lot of eyeballs when I go on. So they I think they this is what they told me because I went and met with their editorial board that. Um, that, you know, it was, uh, that I was getting more eyeballs than any other guests. Wow. On Fox. Yeah, on Fox. And, um, and I think the same as CNN, but CNN won't let me on. The only guy who's let me on CNN was Michael Schmirkanish. And he, it was a very short, uh, interview, but, um, he got in a lot of trouble for it. Wow. Um, so you're running for you're running right now. You're running for president. Yeah. With the Democratic under the D Democratic yeah. Party. Right. Yeah, at the moment. OK. And so the is it usual? Uh, is it normal that someone is able to run against the incumbent? Just I want to make this clear from audience because some audience I hear words a lot of times and I don't know what they mean. Right. So like the incumbent is the guy who's already in office. Right. Yeah. So if, if a president has already done one term then he's the incumbent as he goes up to do the second term, right? Yeah. And he has to run against someone who's submitted by the he, other party. Well, well, he, he ultimately has to run about – the other party you know, is going to nominate somebody to run against him. So the Republicans will nominate somebody to run against. But, but if you're Democrat, a Democrat, if you're popular within your own party, a lot of times you won't have a challenger from within your own party. Got so it. you'll only have to go to the prize fight. You don't have to – you know, fight all the belugas who and, are coming after you. But, and who determines if they have to fight all the belugas? Well, it would be, you know, me. I, I, Like, I would run against them. But my father ran against Lyndon Johnson when, you know, Lyndon Johnson in 68. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson was an incumbent uh, Democratic president, and my father challenged him. And, and ultimately, um, Johnson withdrew. Uh, and... He pulled out of the way at Rays, and then my father won the primaries. Um, and he was killed. My father was killed on the night of the last night of the primaries, so June sixth. Um, he won, you know, the last primaries: California, South Dakota, and a couple of others. And he was killed that night. Um, oh. My uncle Ted Kennedy ran in nineteen eighty against Jimmy Carter, who was a president of his own party. Um, so yeah, it's not uncommon for, for people to run against a president of their own party. And, you know, I, uh, I've had a long friendship with Biden. I've known president Biden for at least 40 years. Oh, wow. And, uh, and you know, he has a statue, a bust of my father on the, uh, behind him 
in the Oval Office. If any picture that you have of Biden, there's a, a bust of my father. You can call one up. Now, um, and there's five members of my family who are working in the administration. In the Biden administration. Yeah. Wow. At different, you know, different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... Uh, Do you think he'll get the nomination from his party for the 2024? Well, I think I could beat him in the... Uh, and yeah, that you can see in that middle one, the second one from the right up there, that one, there's a, there's oh, a bust cool, of my man. father behind him. Wow, that's awesome. That's so yeah. cool, man. That'd be cool if I were my dad. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, do you think that he will get the, yeah, so I guess I have two questions because some uh, of the process. I think I can beat him if they give me a fair fight. Right. Okay. But before that, do you think that they will, he'll get the nomination? Well, I, I think I could get the nomination okay. if they gave me a fair fight. I see. Do you think that you're currently getting a fair fight? No. Why? Well, because they're, they're doing, you know, the Democratic Party is supposed to be neutral. They're not right. supposed to choose favorites, but they actually endorsed him a week after he declared. And his campaign is being run out of the Democratic Party office. Which seems like convoluted, huh? Yeah, it's well, it's not. It's a conflict. And, you know, they, because the, the party should be separate from the president, even if they're of the same. Yeah, they're supposed to be. Even if they're both Democratic. Yeah, the party should be neutral and say, look, we're going to be the referees in this fight. It's like. Okay. It's like if you went to a football game and the referee in the game was wearing the same uniform as your the guys you were playing against. Right, you say, hey, form. hey. Yeah. yeah. So that's what they're doing. And what they've done is they've taken the states that voted most strongly against Biden last time around and they've said, if anybody visits those, if I visit those states, then no vote in that state will count in the election. So if I go to New Hampshire, which I did, mm -hmm. Any vote that I get in New Hampshire will not count. Any and if vote I go you get to, to what? If for, for me. So if I beat Biden in New Hampshire and I win all the delegates, those mm -hmm. delegates will not be allowed into the convention. But how can they just say that? Isn't there like a democratic process that that overrides that? You would think. But actually, it, the party makes its own rules. And there was a, you know, Bernie Sanders, they did the same thing to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, they cooked him, man. And he sued them. And said, you know, you guys were fit rigged the game against me. You fixed it. And the court said, yes, they did fix it. But actually, it's a private club and they're allowed to fix it. They can make up any rules they want. They can do anything they want. So, see, this just leans so much more into like this stuff that like people feel like their vote yeah, doesn't there even you go. matter. Court concedes DNC had the right to rig primaries against Sanders. Uh, and that... And that's, that's Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who, you DNC know. DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz for violating the DNC charter about rigging the Democratic presidential primaries for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders. And she's the one who tried to silence me when I testified before Congress a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And so anyway. It just feels like it. So, it feels so dirty at every turn. Cold turkey. It may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your habits. We're not talking about some voodoo or seancery or anything like that. We're not talking about getting tickled by your crazy neighbor until you just belch up a secret. We're talking about our sponsor, Fume. That's right. They look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? 
Fume is an innovative, award-nominated device that does just that. Instead of electronics, fume is completely natural. Instead of vapor, fume uses flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses all-natural, delicious flavors. You get it. Instead of bad, fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Indeed, stopping is something we all put off because it's hard, but switching to fume is easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over 100,000 customers. Indeed, join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today. Head to tryfume, T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com and use code Theo to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com, tryfume, and use code Theo to save an additional 10% off your order today. Are you missing the syrup for your pancakes? Oh, dang. Or have you just run out of your favorite coffee creamer? Well, with DoorDash Grocery Delivery, you can get what you want when you need it. That's right. You've trusted DoorDash to deliver your restaurant favorites. And now you can get your groceries delivered right there on the same app. With thousands of grocery stores to choose from, you'll find the best in your neighborhood and boost your local economy with each and every order. Want even more value? You can save on all your grocery and restaurant favorites with a $0 delivery fee on all eligible orders with a Dash Pass membership. You can get it. With easy substitutions right in the app and best-in-class customer support, DoorDash delivers groceries exactly how you want them. Get 50% off your first DoorDash order up to a $20 value when you use code THEO at checkout. That's 50% off up to $20, no minimum subtotal, and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code THEO. Don't forget that's code THEO for 50% off your first order with DoorDash. So it feels so dirty at every turn. Yeah, I mean, it, it's bad. To me, it's bad for the country right now because so many people think the whole system is rigged. Yeah, that's what it feels you know? like, man. And um, If my vote doesn't matter. And we should be, I think we should, the, both parties should be conducting elections that are incredibly fair. Mm -hmm. And everybody looks at them and it says, okay, this is a model. America's the exemplary democracy for the world. It should be. It, and one thing you can say about America is it has fair elections and every vote gets counted and, you know. Yeah, it's starting to remind me of the articles I would read in the papers of like Venezuela, a lot of the Central American countries where they would be um, – there would be coups and stuff and they would be overriding the process because they thought the elections weren't fair, you know. Yeah, or, you know, the Soviet in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party, they said oh, we're a democracy. Mm -hmm. But the party would pick the candidate and that would be the only guy you could vote for. And that is exactly what they're doing here. They're saying they're you know the good. They're saying the good and the bad is we have a democracy, but there's only one guy, and everybody's got to vote for him. And it's not, but do they have the right to do that because he's the incumbent? I understand they have it, the right to do it within the Democratic Party process. Okay, and it, then so they you know they're gonna you know uh, it's weird what's happening now, Theo, because. The press is now turning against President Biden. 
So it know, has been interesting to see some of that, huh? Yeah. It's the first time ever I've seen some of the headlines that are, you know, either bringing like his son's issues into it or um, discussing impeachment. I'd never seen that before, you know? Yeah. And the Washington Post, it, uh, there, there's a very famous journalist called David Ignatius who is uh, linked to the intelligence community and he kind of speaks for the, if you if you you know if you if you want to talk about the deep state yeah David Ignatius is the voice of the deep state is and he? he came out and said Biden's got to step down and then immediately CNN um, published a when uh, did a story about all of Biden's lies. Mm -hmm. And then I think today, either Washington Post or New York Times, oh, Maureen Dowd. Well, if he does had step a story down. today about all of uh, uh, his lies. So that you see mm -hmm. these attacks on Biden that are that were not happening before. Right. And well, you know, he, and you wonder what, what what's is what's going on. Well, if he does step down, I hope it's not a far step, to be honest with you, because I don't know if he can handle it. You know, I think the sad, the saddest thing to me is I, I feel like I feel like Mr. Biden just isn't healthy. He doesn't seem like mentally healthy. Right. To me. And I don't know. It could be that they edit clips to look a certain way. He just seems like he's he doesn't seem as healthy as he once was. Right. And so it I feel like to me, it's like a bad example that we this is what we do with our old people. We put them out. It's like this is like a, you know, somebody we're just using it just. I don't know. It just seems like a bad example of how to treat other people. You know, like well, if this were my father and he were to me, what would seem like ailing, like mentally just kind of either losing his uh, composure that he probably once had. And it could be dementia. Like I don't his know. cognitive capacity. His cognitive. That's what I'm saying. If he were losing yeah. it, it would just hurt my feelings if they kept wheeling him out there, you know, but I don't know. Maybe that's what he wants. And, and we just don't hear that part of it. Um, but how? Do, so what is your path then to really get to? the presidential nomination for 2024. Is there a path for you, do you feel like? Well, if President Biden steps out, you know, the decision kind of has to be made by October 15th because oh, they're... that's soon. Yeah, because... You'll know before Halloween. Yeah. The um, October 15th, um, you, you have to start uh, qualifying in certain states... So the, you you have to declare whether you're a Democrat or an independent or a Republican. Yeah. And you can't – a lot of people think, well, you can run as a Democrat and then if you lose everything, then you can just switch to independent and run on independent. But you can't do that because a lot of states have sore loser laws mm. that make it so that you have to choose early and you can't go, you can't come in you know once you've chosen democrat you can't switch to independent that's fair cuz every year they let Odell Beckham Jr join another team right before the Super Bowl and <laughs> I, know, I feel that like doesn't it doesn't seem fair to anybody it just i get that he's good but it doesn't seem that fair <laughs> um so when do you have to so but you've already chosen that you're a democrat right i mean you've been a lifelong democrat is there a chance that you would run as an independent do you look at that ever like and how do you even evaluate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, if they really shut down the process, we're, we're right now, you know, we're grappling with the DNC, trying to get them to do the right thing. But if they rig the process so that I can't possibly win, which is how it's rigged right now, then I would have to look at other options. I would have to look at running as, you know, maybe outside of the party or something. I don't know exactly what I do. I'm hoping that they'll open up the process and let me run. 
Um, you know, we polled this week, and I, if if I if President Biden steps down, um, I uh, I have a pretty clear path to the nomination. My numbers are better than any other Democrats, including the Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, so, and then uh, if he stays in, and they give me a you know a fair fight, I think I can beat him. Yeah. Um, so wow so it's kind of it's tough to figure out kind of you're kind of just navigating the space huh who's ahead in the national polls he, well he beats me among democrats I in see. the national polls no, but if you could get a third of people to switch that were republicans yeah, and a well, third if I that get were democrats a lot, if, yeah that's the thing is that those polls aren't looking at the republicans who want to vote for me or the okay. independents okay um, if you can't get it run this year, would you run in the next next one? No, I'm. Are you I'm thinking gonna, that far ahead? No, is it? Okay, you're not. No, no I'm okay. not thinking all about that. Okay. Uh, um, Some people say that you are that the Republican Party like set you up to take. Do you ever hear? Did you hear about this? Yeah, I hear that, and I'm like a stalking horse for Trump. <laughs> and all I can say is, you know, I don't believe I, that, Bobby. But, but, I'm just asking you. Yeah, I don't yeah, believe yeah. that. Well, you should ask me. I mean, you shouldn't do it publicly like you just did. But really? No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, you should ask me. Yeah, yeah. I, I but but the, here's the thing. Here's the problem with that. First of all, if the Democrats make rules that say I cannot win, you know, and then they complain about me running somewhere else, it's like it's like the, you know, it's like a guy who murders his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. Yeah. You know, they're they're they're, they're they're trying to get public sympathy for a problem yeah. that they created. I hate when I see bananas foster on the menu. <laughs> you know, that's how it goes. But no, I see what you're saying. It's almost like they're playing two cards that are trying to do two different things, but one of them kind of concedes that there's some truth in the other one. Yeah, but the, and then the other thing is that I take more votes from President Trump than I do from President Biden. Right, so why would that help them? Yeah, it's not helping them. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that. Um when you look at, uh, do you feel like there's, do you feel like that the Democratic National Party has treated you fairly like they do every other candidate? Do they always try to, like, how does that usually work? I think what they do, you know, the DNC has a lot of donors. Okay, the DNC. Yeah, the Democratic National Committee. And Committee. they, you know, and the donors are BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Oh, the big, really? Yeah, the big pharmaceutical company, yeah. all the people that I assume, Monsanto, et cetera. So they've got $2 billion in their bank accounts, and it comes from those donors. And they don't. those donors do not want to see me you know, running as the Democratic nominee yeah, no, and not, spending their money. Not an environmentalist for sure. Right. And spending their money then, you know, to dismantle their, uh, their very exploited business models. And so progressive candidates like me mm -hmm. who challenged, you know, the corporate control of our country, people like Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and me are, are you know, told, we don't want you in the party. So that's, you know... And who do you get an email? Do you get a letter? No, no, a text? no. It's just, not a text, huh? We just watch what they do with the rules. You know, how can they change the rules so that votes for me in New Hampshire don't count? Seats taken. Right? So it's yeah. like, you know, Dennis Kucinich, who's running my campaign, who's ran for president twice himself. and Dennis you know, Kucinich? Yeah. He was okay. a, 
he was the youngest mayor in the country. He was the boy mayor of Cleveland. Uh, you know, they tried to, uh, the mafia tried to kill him when he was shot at him and stuff when he was mayor of Cleveland. He's a very, very progressive uh, and, you know, a man of utter, complete integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, you know, he's been around poly. He served, I think, I don't know, six or eight, maybe 10 or 12 terms in Congress. He was, and he ran for president twice. And um, he uh, he got bullets through his through his uh, I think through his living room. Wow, he, um, it's a party, Dennis Kucinich. Yeah. So anyway, he said to me, you know, when I was saying, uh, you know, I, I, when we were talking about the Democratic Party, he said to me, "What part of F you do you not understand? Mm. You know, they're not, they don't have to write you a letter and say, right. You know, go jump in the lake there. They're just saying they're, they're changing the rules. So that, you know, they're they're rigging the game against, against the democratic process. Does that inspire you? you, What does does that inspire you a little bit that that's what's going on? Like, you know, I, I have the same program you do. Yeah. Just live one day at a time. Yeah. Keep doing the next right thing. Yeah. And you know, trying to maintain kind of my inner calm and not, um, and not, you know, if God wants me, right, to win, I'm going to win. I just got to keep doing the right thing, and not, nothing can stop me in that case. That's such and a great point, man. What, so yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I go to a meeting every day. On the, I'm on the road. I'm in a different city every day, and that's the one thing I always do. Wow. And I um. Been in some good ones recently. Anywhere particular that kind of stood out? I went to one in Maine that was pretty cool a few months back. I got an hour and the guys was like this and our. No, I, yeah, I went to one the other day where uh, it was a guy. And that, first of all, I went to one in Barbados one time where they, yes, were, man. they were talking no about. No beer for me, man. <laughs> they were talking about, it was a, like a nightstand meeting and they were talking about how to take curses off of people. Oh, damn, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I went to one in Belfast during the war there, which was really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I went to one the other day, and they were, um, it was, uh, and I went to this, it was in New Hampshire, and they were, they were um, uh, and the, the people, I had been to a couple times, and, they, and the people in that meeting recognized me, they know who I am, mm-hmm. most of them. And it's it's a very supportive atmosphere for me. You know, I don't know whether they're Republicans or Democrats, but anyway, it's very nice. It's a very warm, safe kind of place. And um, I heard a guy. There was a break. They take a, at those meetings up in New England. They take a five minute cigarette break halfway oh, yeah. through the meeting. Yeah, and uh, it's from like the old old days. Yeah, and they uh, this guy was sitting like four or five seats behind me. And he, he's you know, one of these old people who talks really loud because he's going deaf. Yeah. And he's, uh, you know, they compensate by talking super loud. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying, uh, he was saying, RFK Jr. And he had three or four of his cronies around him talking and they were whispering to him, you know, that's RFK Jr. And he said, he's the anti-vaxxer. And I, you know, I was just listening. I was like, you know, I can hear what you're saying. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. yeah, some senior <laughs> citizens are whisper gets a little, <laughs> a little high, a little um, high in the whisper. And then he, when he did speak at that meeting, and he spoke about, 
you know, how important it was to get your jab and stuff. And um, and I could tell it was directed sort of, you know, clearly it was directed toward me. Um, but I'm, you know, I feel like peaceful. And, and afterward, I went up and, you know, talked to him, said hi and, and, uh, and smiled. But, I, you know, it makes me, I, my job is to stay sort of peaceful and serene and, um, and not, and anything that I've ever done in my life that is enduring, that is important, um, has come out of, you know, that spiritual place. And anything that I do that comes from frenetic activity is, uh, you know, is just wormwood and bile. I know. And I, I remember reading about Abraham Lincoln where he was, you know, he was the rail splitter and everything. They asked he had a bunch him, of cats too. He had cats? Yeah. He's uh, a big cat owner. Really? Mm hmm I know that he, I know that he loved animals. I, I did not know about the cats. Some man gave him two hat two some man gave him two cats. William Seward right there. Oh, he was, was given an unexpected gift of two kittens from Secretary of State. He's a real cat boy. Yeah. I've been to his home. They you know, his home in Springfield or Yeah, and they one the, one cool thing that's really neat about Springfield, bring it up if you can, Nick. They have like the whole neighborhood they turned into a museum so you can go to his neighbor's house you can go down the street oh, and like, really it's really cool yeah like you oh, literally feel that. like you're in the past yeah i um so he also really on the same subject of him and animals he was he killed a turkey when he was like 12 years old he shot it from his cabin in kentucky and gobblers yeah and he he went out and he saw it in its its final suffering, and he vowed that he would never kill a, a, an animal again. He was probably the only person in his generation that, when if his wagon was going down the road and it was going to run over a snake, he'd stop and get out and pick the snake up and mm. move it. He was, you know, which is ironic because, you know, he he had a. He ran a war that killed 659,000 people. <laughs> but Grant, Ulysses Grant, who did a lot of the killing, mm -hmm. you know, hand-to-hand, -hand, he had the same thing. He he never lost his temper. The only time that he was ever seen to lose his temper was when he saw a man beating a horse. Mm. Some real animal lovers. You yeah. know, Hooker, there was a Sergeant Colonel Hooker. Yeah, old General. General Hooker. Yeah. That's how they got the term Hookers, because he brought ladies in. Oh, really? To spend time I with his troops. You know a lot of history, of interesting history. I don't know about that, but I, that's, I know about Hookers, buddy. I mean, unfortunately. And Anyway. But I do point. know that. Civil okay. War, yeah. They brought in Hookers first. But... Um, American Civil War. He was popular with his men because he didn't crack the whip um, in terms of discipline. It said uh, after a hard day on the battlefield, he would bring in prostitutes. But they eventually, a lot of his men got diseases from unprotected sex yeah. and killed a lot of them. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, I, I was saying about Lincoln. Lincoln said, he was asked, how do you... Um, what would you do if you had to cut down a like a really big oak tree and you had five hours to do it? He said, "I'd spend four hours sharpening the axe, you know, which is good." Yeah, because it it's like it's um it's a metaphor for you know keeping yourself in kind of a good spiritual space. You know that you it's you're it's you're more efficient, you're more effective, you expend less energy. Yeah. Yeah, man, I, I've, I definitely, that's been a, probably a struggle for me this year is trying to, 
do too much, getting frenetic, and then acting. I'm getting a little better. I'm, I'm getting better at it, but acting from a place of like frenetic, you know? It's just, man, sometimes it just gets tough. It's tough, you know? But every time I slow it down, every time I kind of do my morning routine well and do my practices, everything's way different. Um, what was what was one thing that sobriety, we're both sober. Yeah. So what was one thing that um, sobriety kind of adjusted or changed in your for you in your life that you didn't expect maybe? What was something that came out of it or being a part of it or around it? Well, it changed everything in my life because I think before I came in, I was just like a bundle of appetites, you know, and that's when you're you're kind of living uh, according to self-will. And, you know, it's like whether it's, you know, drugs or alcohol or sex or extreme behavior or just, you know, I was always just filling that empty hole inside of me with, with things, trying to fix that by... Yeah reaching for things outside of myself. And my mind is like a formulation pharmacy. I can turn anything into a drug. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, and then, um, and then trying to uh, adjust your compass so that you're, you know, you're not living for self-will, but you're trying to um, do the next right thing and, and, you know, be of service to others. Um, and that, you know, that that is what, you know, when I, I was, a, when I, I, I feel like I was born an addict. I feel like I had just mm. an empty hole inside of me from when I was a little kid. And you don't think, so you don't think it was something really that caused it when you look at I life. don't think so. But, you know, yeah. I, and you hear in the program all the time, like half the people think they were born with it and others think that, you know, trauma you know, had something to do with it. But, I, you know, I also, I, I, there's certain races like the Irish mm -hmm. that are oh, yeah. what we know. Yeah. There's other ones too. They're the most thirsty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Irish, yeah. I mean, they're good at you. They make it look good. I mean, for, for I mean, we bit. call it the Irish flu. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it's, Was it popular? you go into a meeting and you know yeah in any meeting any place in the country and half the people in it are you know Sullivan or O'Brien and oh yeah a lot of Irish you know. yeah um, was there was there was was alcoholism in your family was it popular in my mother's family it was back to the Neanderthals wow they were all you know. And of all of my mother's siblings, she was the only one that did not get it. Mm. And um, wow, that's a lot. Then that's pretty strong. Yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's good to have a program, man. I think it adds a lot. I think it's definitely been a saving grace for me, uh, for sure. Just the people I get to meet. Like last night, a guy texted me a new a new guy. I've been texting in the in the, in the rooms, and we're texting. And he he hit me up yesterday. I was like, hey, you want to go to a meeting? I wasn't going to go, you know. So next thing you know, I go, and we're like over in Venice, and it's eight p.m. We're sitting on a porch at some guy's house, you know, listening to a guy talk about how. He was in a gang and his brother uh, got killed right next to him, you know, and uh, and how for years he was using. And then finally he started to get help and got in the program and just but to sit there and hear a story like that. Was yeah. that real? You I mean, know, that's part of the fun of going to the meetings. Right. I mean, it that. just puts something real in your life. It's like I left out of there like, sure, you know, it was very sad, but it was like a real thing. It was like I left out of there with like, I don't know, it just people sharing makes you feel more connected, you know. Um, but you know when you uh, 
when you got sober, did you realize, did you, because a lot of, I know a lot of comics feel like, you know, that the alcohol and the drugs are part of what makes them funny. Did you, and that they have anxiety about getting sober because they think it might hurt. Yeah, I think I had some of that for sure. You know, I was in and out for a long time. I had three years sober and then I was in and out. And then finally, I just was so spiritually just empty. You know, I'd gotten a decent amount of popularity and I thought that that would achieve my happiness or it would do something for me. And it just didn't do anything. It was like literally getting to the top of a mountain and, or, you know, a decent ledge on a mountain. And you're like, dang, I'm still on a mountain, you know? <laughs> That's what it felt like. And so I think that just made me realize that there was something bigger going on inside of me that I had to get some help for. Um, and then just the gifts of it, like seeing other people get well, like seeing people's lives turn around, like just, it's it's cool. I can go to a place every day. I can go somewhere and witness a miracle almost. And that's unbelievable. You know, people are looking for miracles and reasons to make them feel, you know? And so I think that's one of the reasons I go to is because there, it makes me feel in there. You know, like regular life, it was always trying to find something to make me feel. And I could never, I couldn't do it. There wasn't anything that was doing it enough. But man, I go in there and I see somebody, how their life has changed. And man, it makes me feel, you know? And that's really what I've always been looking for. I've just been wanting to feel. And that's probably one of the most blessings of it. And then just getting to meet cool. I mean, like, you know, you and I are friends. I have so many, most of my friends are sober. Yeah, You know, it's kind of crazy. It's just how it kind of works out. And also some of them used to be the biggest derelicts. So you get to hang out with the craziest people in the world, you know? Yeah, I mean, alcoholics are, are generally kind of desperados. Yeah. Oh, they're interesting. You feel like a desperado in this campaign. I mean, one thing that I, that I thought about was interesting about you is that nobody was in your pocket because nobody was getting on board with you. It, you know, you like, yeah, it, it seemed like <laughs> there's no choice. Like no. there's nothing that's like, this is who we, this is, this guy is what he is, whether you, he's not working for anybody. That's what it always was like. That's the most admirable thing to me about anything these days is like, I just want somebody who's not part of the status quo because the status quo feels very dangerous or the system feels dangerous, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense or not? Yeah, and I, you know, it's, I don't know, I think, you know, my campaign, the way it came together, it, it feels, I don't know, it just feels like um, uh, there's some, you know, all the people who are involved in it are people who are, you know, on some kind of a spiritual quest, you know, and it's, it's really interesting because they came from all, you know, different, but you know, I, there was a early on in my campaign. We didn't have any money because most people who join, who start a campaign, are their senators, governors. They've been in politics before, right? So they have an email list, and they have a huge war chest. They come in with twenty or thirty million dollars, and you're not allowed to raise any money till you register with the FEC, with the Federal Election Commission. So okay. you know, so you announce, I announced my campaign. And I have no money in the bank. So, no, you know, let's say I get 5,000 calls the next day. I want to help you. I got nobody to answer the phone. Oh. There's, I don't have a phone because right. I'm not allowed to spend money until I register. And so we were really desperate for money at the outset. And a guy 
said, um, contacted me and said, through a friend and said, you know, I want to, I, I can get $10 million for you fast. And oh, I, dang. I spent, uh, I met him in my hotel. And I Was just, it like one of those consolidation credit card things? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just a guy who, you know, he, he was a, an attorney who had a lot of clients. Oh, who, okay. Or, private, or, private deal. In industries. And he said, um, who would, who would give me money? But they were industries that I really didn't want to take money from. Yeah. And I, um, and so, and he left. And I just didn't, it, it just didn't feel, it felt like, it just didn't feel right. And so I called the guy who had brought him in and I just said, I, I, we, I can't do it. And I, I immediately felt like, yeah, that was the right decision. Yeah. And, you know, if we're supposed to win, we'll win. But, you know, whatever happens, um, at the end of this process, I'm going to have my integrity intact. And that's the only thing that really matters. Yeah. You know? Wow, that's cool, man. Your wife seems so proud of you. I saw you on Tiger Belly. I felt like oh. she, seems, she seems so proud of you. That's, it seemed pretty cool. That was wild, that show. Yeah, I thought at first when I was all there, I was like, wow, this is a different world. But... I think yeah. Well, that, were you? Have you been on the show before? I've been on the show before. Yeah. And what did you think of it? It's bonkers in there. You know, yeah. it's like uh, but it's just this. It's very high energy. But yes. he's so he's such a sweet. Yeah, you know, Bobby's a lovable guy. Lovable. He, yeah, he is, and he's um, what is he like? He's had a kind of a wild life. You know, he's had an interesting life, and but he's beloved by people. And I think part of his podcast is just being in his world and what it's like, you know. So I thought it was brave of you to go, but I also thought that it was cool, you know, and you got to see you and your wife. And I, I just felt like, man, I could tell your wife just seemed real proud of you. Maybe she's also just a good actress, but she seems super <laughs> yeah, proud of you. Yeah. Um, she seems to love me, but, you know, I have to keep saying she's an actress. How do I know? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one day she could just say, and yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there was recently, there was like a, you guys had a, uh, you guys had an issue with the security, right? That, that happened. This is a few days yeah. ago, maybe where they had a guy who was a, like, it looked like he was, uh, here we go. Armed man arrested at RFK junior campaign event in Los Angeles. Was this guy armed and supportive of you or was he armed and it seemed like he was against you or was there, did you have any take on this? He was, he showed up and he asked um, he, uh, he was wearing a, a U.S. Marshal badge. You can see it in some of the, he was wearing a lanyard. You can see the lanyard around his neck there. And at the end, at yeah. the end of that is a badge mm -hmm. that identified him as a U.S. Marshal. Mm -hmm. And then he had a federal ID on his belt. Okay. You can see there. Yeah. Right. He has some other kind of badge on his belt and you see the badge around his neck. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was determined to be fake. Mm. And somebody from my Gavin Becker Associates, which is was doing is doing my security. They won't, you know, the White House will not give me Secret Service protection. So I, you know, I've I've retained this this group that's the premier security group in the country. And they um and one of their guys looked at that badge and said that's too shiny. Wow. It, it's not it's not a real badge. Yeah. And so then they he wire, he called somebody else who was armed mm -hmm. and the two of them cornered him and then they called the police and they kept him in the corner. They didn't want to grab him because they didn't want to start a shootout. 
and they could see that he had shoulder holsters on. And so then the police came and, and arrested me. He was asking for me. Oh, he was looking for me. And he uh, he had two shoulder holsters with oh. that were fully loaded uh, pistols. And then he had, you can see that badge on his hip. Yeah, he's badged up, huh? Yeah, and then he... Uh, and he had, he was also had a backpack that had another weapon in it, another gun. Like a sword? He also had knives on him. Oh, and he had a lot of extra um, magazines filled with ammunition. So he said afterwards, apparently his brother said, oh, he heard there was a job opening for security, but you don't go to a job opening for security with you know, all those <laughs> magazines and guns and knives and two three pistols. Yeah, His yeah, brother yeah. who brought him there also was like, you know, like an armory. So right. They had a whole car filled with, with weapons. Wow. Jeepers, so I have jeepers. no idea. I don't know what he was looking for, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> the thing that you should do is go on his YouTube. Uh-huh. I mean, his uh, TikTok. Yeah. He has a TikTok site that he just opened, so he only has one TikTok video mm-hmm. on it. And it's of him just before he comes to see me. Really? Yeah, see that it, if you can find it, Nick will find it. It is, uh, yeah, it because some people want to show end up of that, at the end of that thing. Oh. He says something to the effect of, I'm going out to do a job right now, and if I don't come back, you know, it's uh, if I don't come back, report to your commander, Donald J. Trump, your commander in chief. So it's a very kind of, okay, well, you want to watch this? It's about a minute. Yeah. It's worth watching. Let's watch it. You got to turn the sound up. Here we got it. Oh, shit. Big homie Zorro over here. I think this is his brother talking to him. Yeah. More like God's gangster. Shit, I hear you're the man with the plan. What's shit. the word? I got it all. Actually, there's too much to tell you right now. So I want you guys to go over to... Rumble, check out Icons 2020, Sarge, I will be speaking with him, and Alex Collier. You're not retiring, homie. You didn't fucking ask me, dog. I need you, sport. Okay, so this guy's not doing well, huh? No. Yeah, My name is this Adrian guy ain't doing well. Paul. And this could be also be an advertisement for Rumble. First name, I would see him go to something like this. Okay, I think I've seen enough. But yeah, I get it. So this guy's like, yeah. Last name, In the end, he does this little, you know, kind of. Let's see the end. Suicide by police. Yeah, show the last. I don't know, 10 seconds. There we go. If I don't make it back. Call the fucking president, your commander-in-chief, Donald J. Trump. And where's he going? I didn't even see a door over there when it was a wide shot. <laughs> so that's the weird part of he's just walking just over the, like, by some tool chests. Wow. I mean, look, dude, just so be, I don't know. Be, I don't know what, yeah, what? you don't have, y'all don't have the best track record with, like, no. you know. You mean the family? Yeah. I don't want to say that, but yeah, I mean, and yeah, I shouldn't have said it like that, but, you know, it's like... Is it more scary? I, but you can't live in fear. What are you going to no, do? No, I'm, I'm not going to live in fear. Yeah. I, I, I know. Yeah. It is what it is. And, um, you know, but but the, the White House should definitely be giving me Secret Service. Well, can I, you I'm save your first, receipts? I'm and if the, you get in there, can I'm you get the, reimbursed or not? What? Can you, no. Oh. 
Yeah. Uh, so, and I think that's what they're up to, that they want to, you know, bleed me white, essentially, you know, from money perspective. But um, they, I'm the first candidate in history that has requested Secret Service protection they, they haven't given to. But do they give it to you this early? Because I read oh, somewhere here's, that they don't... Here's what, because they've, the, the press has been dishonest about this. You're entitled to it. They have to give it to you 120 days out from the before the the general election. If what? What circumstances? They, uh, to all candidates, 120 days out. Okay. It, well, you have to have a certain polling number, but I've I've surpassed all the threshold by far. Okay. So, um, but for, like my uncle Teddy was given uh, Secret Service protection 551 days out. But and, he was also a poly. He was like a lifelong politician. Oh, he was a he was a politician, but he wasn't even running for president. He he was talking about running for president against a president of his own party, like me, Carter. See. But Carter said, "You better protect him right away." Right. And even though he didn't, hadn't officially declared they gave him Secret Service protection, Obama got it four hundred and fifty days out. Uh, John McCain got it. Uh, four or five hundred days out. I'm. I think I'm like three hundred days out now. Jesse Jackson got it. Shirley Chisholm. You go down. There's probably thirty of them who've yeah. all gotten it long before the hundred and twenty days. Okay. And I get. You know. I mean. We gave them a sixty-eight page. Um, yeah, I remember uh, reading about that. Six, yeah. And why you should have it? Yeah, with Phil, because I get death threats all the time, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I had a, a mentally ill person uh, break into my house know, a month ago and and make oh, it to the second yeah. floor. No, are you at your house? Yeah. So, oh my God! You know, I mean, so I, I, they should. You would think that the president would. Uh, yeah, don't if you know Biden, can't you just like ask him? Well, we're not on talking terms at the moment. Okay. Damn, that's a bummer. Yeah, because you'd think you'd be able to hit him up and be like, Joey, you know? Yeah. I'll trade you an ice cream for a couple of front door goons, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A couple of sharpshooters, dude. I bet you trade, you send him a box of mint chocolate chip, buddy, you'll get whatever you want. You think? Yeah, it could be. I mean, you know, I think every man loves to have a dessert. Um, <laughs> do you think that Donald Trump will, le will legally be allowed to run in the election? Yeah, I don't think they can stop him from running, even if he was in jail. Yeah. He's still entitled to run because there's only, you know, the, the Constitution, uh, the Constitution says there's only three things that you got to do to be, you have to be a citizen, you have to be born here, and you have to be over 35 years of age. Okay. And that's it. You can be a president. There's no, there's no way to block somebody because they got convicted. Uh, you know, it's in the Constitution what the criteria is for being president. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like some people like Trump because they he just wasn't a politician. You know, he could have been anybody. He could have been a fraggle. He could have been a, a mime. I think some people just want anything that's not they just something has to change. They feel like at the very least, I'll vote for something that's not a politician. I just feel like people start to feel like this. The overall system is so corrupt, you know, um, yeah. and. I think that's something that's been kind of harrowing just to voters overall. Um, well, you know, people are people are suffering in this country now. And, yeah, you know, we're not. You know, like I said before, when you know, with housing, 
our kids are not going to get, you know, the, the American promise, the American dream was that this promise that if you worked hard, you play by the rules, you could afford a house, you could have a summer vacation, you could uh, take care of your family, and you could put money aside for retirement with one job. Yeah. And there, you know, my kids, you know, I have seven kids, you know, six of them are in that 20, 30 range and not, none of them and none of their friends are looking for a house because it's so out of reach. And, um, you know, you have a whole generation of kids who now are struggling with the, with college debts that are, they, what they pay for college is seven times what I paid. They're never going to pay off that college debt and they're never going to own a home for yeah. most of these kids. And it's like, like, you know, the American dream is gone. Right. And so and then what people, is it? If you don't have an American dream, then what do you have? You well, know, that's, I think that's one of the, the thing that starts to people, get sad. That, that's one of the reasons that people are so angry at both Republicans and Democrats because there, there's a, a level of disintegration in this country and deterioration. I mean, I, you know, I do, I, Talk, end up talking to a lot of people because of my job. You know, I, I represent a thousand families in Columbiana County, Ohio, for the Norfolk Southern spill. Oh yeah, um, and Trained. and you know all of these environmental cases. I end up talking to people at every level of society, and I see the desperation that people are living in. It's like. You know, elderly people now are splitting their their drug prescriptions, cutting pills in mm -hmm. two to make them stretch out the, the week so they can buy food. There's young couples who have a crying baby who have to wonder whether the baby is $50 sick or $100 sick or $1,500 sick before they bring them to a hospital. Yeah, There's people your age and my kid's age who, um, who are choosing between gasoline and food. And, uh, you know, there, it's 57% of the people in this country cannot put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. For somebody like that, if the engine light goes on in the car, it's the apocalypse. Yeah. Because they, they, they know they can't afford that mechanic. They know, uh, okay, now I can't get to work. I'm going to lose my job, then I'm going to lose my house, and then I'm going to be like all those people in San Francisco who were just regular, you know, Joes. Yeah. And they, didn't, they weren't, and, dr they weren't yeah. drug addicts. They weren't mentally ill. They just had a string of bad luck. The, the engine light went on their car, and they couldn't find the mechanic. That's and, what I feel like. I feel like the engine light's on in this country. Yeah. That's what I feel like. Well, you, and, know, when you're, you know when you're driving around with your engine on empty? Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, and you, yeah, right. And you can't think of anything else because you're thinking, how am I, am I going to be able to get that gas tank? And it, it literally makes you stupid. It makes you, you lose IQ because that's all you can think about. Now, put two kids in the back of your car, you know, a toddler in a baby seat and another kid, and you're now magnifying that anxiety. And now you're driving through a bad neighborhood and you're starting to think of all of the bad things. That, well, that's what it's like living paycheck to paycheck, and that's what Americans are doing. And uh, it's like most Americans wake up every day and with that sense of impending doom, and they're, it's like they're driving around empty. They know. don't know what's gonna happen, and they're desperate, and, they, and nobody is listening to them. The politicians aren't listening to them from the Republican or the Democrats. And Donald Trump comes along and says, I'm going to break things. And uh, and they love him. And I get it. You know, and the Democrats can't understand why are all these people liking Donald Trump. 
that's the reason. Yeah. Because you're not listening to them. Um, yeah, I think – and people want anything. I'd have voted for – I'd vote for a – literally a puppet. I'd vote for Grover. I'd vote for anything <laughs> that wasn't a poli- – you know, yeah. that wasn't a career politician because I'm just so over it. And you see these shows like Painkiller and like um, – Yeah. That one on Hulu too, the one that I can't remember. Yeah, what is it called? The uh, uh, one about the Sacklers. Yeah, yeah. At, and at and Pharma. If that show you, didn't uh, ruin your faith – in taking care of people in this country, it's unfucking real, man. I hate to use that language, but it made me so mad, bro. Yeah, it just made me so mad how compromised we are, how how it feels, you know. Um, because if we're not even out here caring about each other, then what are we even doing? You know, that's what it starts to feel like. It's like if we're not out here trying to be, do something, like, then what are we? We're just then what you know i'm just out here to have a nice car it's just i don't know man yeah it's it's about is it about we're just here to make a big pile for ourselves and whoever dies with the most stuff wins yeah but we've proven that there's no value in it it's like it's been proven over and over again that there's no value in it you know um when you uh when you come across people like that right on your campaign trail and you like, what do you offer them? What type of hope do you offer them? Well, you know, I think that's why I have because, I mean, I have specific things that I'm going to do to make. Right. I, well, I mean, like with housing, what I, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to make a three percent mortgage available to every American for a single family home. So if you right now, you know, you're going to pay seven or eight or I'm just saying, I'm going to. Cut that down so your mortgage for the average home, $215,000 or $400,000 is $1,000 a month, which people can afford. And mm-hmm. it's going to allow you to compete and your kids to compete with BlackRock. I'm going to change the tax code to, to make it more difficult for them to, you know, com- to, to buy up all the single-family homes, which is not good for democracy, not good for our country. Mm. You know, if you have a rich uncle, you can get a – uh, who will co-sign your mortgage, you can get a much cheaper mortgage rate because the bank is looking at his credit rating, you know, his perfect credit rating rather than your So it's miserable. like nepotism kind of. Oh, you know, they're, 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 and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give everybody a rich uncle, which is Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a, a, the U.S. government to co-sign your mortgage. Now, if you default, and the government owns your house. So no foul, no loss. But it's going to allow you to stay in that house, and you know I'm going to give the first half mil five hundred thousand to teachers because we need to start supporting the teachers in this country. But to make them available to all Americans who want a single family home, because we need widespread home ownership. Thomas Jefferson said, "American democracy can only survive if there if it's based on." on tens of thousands of independent freeholds owned by individual Americans and, you know, not big corporations, yeah. the aristocratic, the feudal model where the billionaires own the landscapes and we all are, you know, we, we're no longer citizens. We're now, you know, we're now uh, subjects. We're not, you know, we're serfs on our in our own country. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like we're subjects and the lords won't even tell us who they are. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's the sickest part. At uh, least show your fucking face, you know? At yeah. least let me know who's, you know, it's like, that's what it feels like a lot of times. Um, I know you went and visited the border. We had a border patrol security. Uh, we had a gentleman on here who was the head of the border patrol. Oh, Chris Clem. 
No, this guy, he had retired, uh, Roy Villarreal. Okay. He came on here, this was two years ago, and he was talking about one of the biggest issues that he was noticing at the border. This was in Arizona. That was his jurisdiction. Yeah. Was that um, they people were getting, the, 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 the legislative branches weren't working well. So, like, they would arrest people, but they weren't prosecuting them. So they would get just the same people back over and over again. So it seemed like such a goose chase. Um, well, it's gotten 100 times worse now. Wow. Because now that people are just, I mean, I was, there between two and four a.m. in the morning, I watched three hundred people just walk across, and then the border patrol brings them to the airport, and um, you know they prod, they fingerprint them if they're criminal, then they go into a different you know line. But mm -hmm. the rest of them are brought to the Yuma Airport, given a, um, uh, a ticket to any place they want to go in the United States, uh -uh. and then we pay for it if they don't have the money for it. And, you know, they've 110,000 have landed in New York. And this is a humanitarian crisis. I, I talked to the people who are coming over. They've been exploited, extorted, beaten. What's, what's happened is the, the whole thing's run by the Mexican drug cartel. We saw the buses. The, they have white buses, the cartel owns. 55 people a bus. They pick them up in Mexicali and they bring them to the border and they let them out. The people who come out are from every country. They're not, you know. The, right, they're from all over. And they have they're to pay the Africa, cartels. They're from Asia. Right. The yeah, they have to pay the cartels to yeah. get through their land. 50, well, right. But they pay them usually up front ten to $15,000 to get them across the United States. Mm. And the cartels are advertising all over the world. Wow. And they're advertising on YouTube, TikTok. <laughs> they're telling you exactly what's going to happen to you. They come across, and then what happens is they're given by the Border Patrol. The border, There's nine Border Patrol committed suicide because the, what they're being asked to do is not their job. They're just escorting people. Seven million people have come across illegally in three years, and legal immigration during that period was 3.1 million. So the cartels are literally controlling our wow. immigration policy. And uh, well, what's you know, the solution we a, to it? We have a video that I made, you know, an 18 minute video that shows what happened. But but you were only the, down there for what? How long were you down there for? I was there for three days. Okay. And then, um, you know, and then we've been dealing, you know, we made the film. We, we you know, I've been writing a lot about it, researching it, and it can totally be be uh, shut down overnight. They're not. And what happens is people think, well, there, uh, there's a big, all those people yep, I watched coming across. But I just wonder, is that, is that a long enough ch like time to go see it? Like three days? Is that a realistic? Well, I had three intense days of, first of all, the first night watching all these people come and then spending the next days with local law enforcement, local sheriff's mm -hmm. department, the ICE, the Border Patrol, all the local yeah. medical systems, the doctors, and doing good you know you. Yeah. interviews. No, it's good to day. talk with those people. That's why we wanted the guy because we kept hearing the border, but it gets it gets like becomes like this political like red rover that 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 different parties use, and you never know what's going on. That's why we wanted a Border Patrol agent in so we could really yeah. see what happens. There's a guy called Chris Clem who was the head of the Border Patrol in Yuma. And he's fantastic, and he's giving us advice. But, you know, what happens is that a lot of the Democrats think, oh, we're being kind to these people by letting them in, but then we're not. In fact, what happens is they're given a court date for seven years in the future to go to the asylum court. So they have seven years in this country where they have no legal status. So they're not allowed to work. So they... Um, they they'll work for five or six. You know, you have unscrupulous employers. Yeah. Them five or six bucks an hour, and then you know they're they're employed on construction sites in New York. 
the employee, the construction company that's employing them is competing for bids against a union labor company. Ah, and, and he the can, un, the union, union, he can, get a he's got, because he's paying mm. six bucks an hour. Right. So, but just, but just as guilty as the, as the people who are undermining the system, right. As they are of undermining the system, people can have their own like uh, social beliefs about it, but there is guilt of undermining what the system is that's in place. But those, the people that pay them to work are also guilty, right? If they're, yeah, I mean, what I, you know, what I, here's what I would do. And first of all, you need, a, you need to hire a thousand asylum judges and they, you need to adjudicate before people come in. Once they come in, they're entitled to stay here until they yeah. get a court date. Put them right on the border like Judge you yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And they adjudicate right there. And, um, and, and, and it will shut down the border. All the way. And, but most of the people, 99% of the people we interviewed didn't even have an asylum claim. They just said, well, I'm here to work. Right. I want a job. Right. And so they, you know, they are not entitled. They have to come through the regular line like everybody else legally. Yeah, that's what's uh, fair is just doing it legally because you can't keep – if you don't have accounting and inventory of your business, then you're bound to go. Yeah. You know? Um, I'll, I'll tell you how you shut it down overnight. And this is what I'm going to do the day I get into office. I'm going to waive passport fees for all any American who can't afford it. Now, what that means is if you can get a passport card, I yeah. don't know if you've seen yeah, it, I got but one. it looks like a license, it's right? Nice. It's a federal ID with your picture on it. And the problem is it costs $65 and there's some paperwork attached that makes it difficult for very poor people to get them. And so there's a lot of people in our country who are poor, particularly in cities, who don't drive cars. They don't have a driver's license. They have no government-issued ID. Now, if you don't have a government-issued ID, you're a second-class citizen. You cannot open a bank account, which means you're using, you know, the, the uh, pay, paycheck, uh, you know, companies that take 10% of your Social Security check to cash your check. You can't get on an airplane. You can't stay at a hotel. You can't visit your kids at school. Mm. And um, so what I'm going to do, there's 33,000 post offices in this country. I'm going to make it very easy for any American citizen who can't afford it to go down to the local post office and get a passport ID. Once they do that, you now tell employers you cannot hire somebody unless they have that passport ID. I will shut down the border overnight. Because nobody's going to come through if they know they cannot get a job. Because now you're pro now you can prosecute employers. Right now, what they do, the employer, construction firm in New York, they they're just they don't care if you're legal or illegal. They just want somebody who's cheap as possible and that they can check the box. Mm -hmm. So they ask for social security card. The social security card has no picture on it. They're easily fabricated and they're handed, you know, passed down from person to person. Oh yeah. Those things are nuts. Right. And so you can't put the employer in jail because he says, Hey, I, I got a social security card, but mm. now you're telling the employer, the employer, it's illegal for the employer to do, do it. Right. And now you're saying you got to have a passport card or you're going to jail. Okay. That at that point, all illegal employment dries up overnight. Nobody is going to employ somebody with the risk of going to prison. And, but, and one other thing it'll do is that um, it will solve a lot of the anxieties that people have, Republicans particularly, about voting. 
because they say, oh, you know, these people are coming in and they're voting, people are voting without ID and they're double voting, they're committing voting fraud. Well, now everybody has an ID and you can't have any of that kind of voting fraud. And, and the Democrats support it. I mean, the Democrats will support it, although Biden won't sign this bill. But, um, but you know, the big civil rights leaders like Andy Young, Al Sharpton are all behind this idea. This idea. So we can solve all these problems and the anxieties and the debate about the voting system and whether you need ID or not to vote. Right now, Democrats oppose ID laws. And the reason they they oppose it is they say if you get if you force people to show an ID, you're disenfranchising a lot of students who don't have driver's license. You're disenfranchising poor people who live in the city who don't have driver's license. And there's other people in the country, elderly people, a lot of their license have lapsed, so they don't have ID. And you disenfranchise all of those, those are all Democrats. So the Democrats say we shouldn't have ID laws. Mm. Now we've got civil rights leaders who are saying, yeah, let's have IDs to vote, but let's give everybody an ID so everybody can get one. Right, then nobody has an excuse. And nobody has an excuse. Yeah. What do you say to, so some people would say that that, it, that takes away some of the old, like, adage and the old like uh romantic idea of like um you can come to america and you can make it here does that does that do that by making the border because what are you doing making the border more organized you're not there, saying there's no country in the world that that has an insecure border yeah you oh, gotta I, be, I think it's we, all... have, we have to be able to control 100%. who comes in now what i would do i think we should have high fences but wide gates we should let a lot of people in legally make it much easier to get citizenship um and make sure that there's plenty of people to you know to, to uh to, for employers etc so that we can keep our country humming yeah right and but we should be, be able to select who comes through not have the mexican drug cartels select i agree it's a good point. No, it's, I mean, it's disheartening. It's very scary to think that anybody can just come in, you know? I mean, I know that we're all here and we're blessed to be here. I just think it needs to be organized. Um, remember when Reagan had that plan that couldn't you sponsor people that were coming in? Well, you him? still can, you know, that people. That'd be awesome, bro. Well, but you can still can do that. I mean, legally, 3.1 million people are coming across, and a lot of them are coming across on visas that require them to have a sponsor because they're employment visas. Yeah. An employer says, we need this guy. We need to bring him from Uzbekistan. Let's bring him. <clears throat> I want Hector. I'll sponsor Hector. To sponsor your family member, submit a U.S. Citizen, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Form 130. Each person you sponsor needs a separate Form 130. Huh. Uh, let me ask you this. How long we should sponsor one as a podcast. <laughs> How long has your family been in this country? Let me see. My father came over in 1922, I think. From, from where? From uh, Nicaragua. And my mother, I don't know when she came. Probably, probably she's probably been here for like 102, 150 years. So, and what, what like, ethnic group is she? Mm, let me see. Polish, Italian, and Nicaraguan. That's what I am. So and Nicaraguan is that Hispanic or is it Indian or have um, you it's a, actually it's it's a good question it's uh it's a little bit of both I think it's part Aztec maybe I got to check yeah. and see but the, the Mesquite Indians are down there are they oh yeah, yeah. dude that's probably me then um, <laughs> I got to see my but I remember my father's birth certificate um, 
But have you ever done like 23 in May or anything like that? Yeah, I've done it. I don't know what they said. They email me so much. They're like, guess who's allergic to milk in your area? They're always sending me like weird emails now, you know? Yeah, I know. I, and I don't trust them really. Yeah, so if it's like, they yeah. Got, I get all my stuff. Yeah, guess who hates, guess who hates cinnamon rolls on your street? You know, they're like, I don't, what? <laughs> what does this matter? Is it a cousin or not? I went um, hiking this morning with Tulsi Gabbard. You went hiking with her? Yeah, and I was and I was asking her about her, her you know, her ethnic background, and she said she did twenty three. She actually did a. There's a TV show where they um, they they investigate your background. Oh yeah, they, they do it with celebrities. I saw. I think yeah. Drew Barrymore was on it. Yeah, and she did that. Oh, that's and cool. And they said um, that she had the most ethnically diverse background that they'd ever run into. Wow. She is. Uh, she is. Uh, Art Samoan, so she's Polynesian. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And she, uh, but then she's got everything else. Mm. You know, she's got the whole like every country in Europe. I wish I could be Samoan. I wish I could be Mexican. Some sometimes, um, maybe next life. You know, um, what will keep you? Say you get in office, Bobby. Right? Like, what keeps you? Right? A guy that is trying to do it his way. How do you get? Um, sabotaged how do guys get sabotaged once they get into office like how do people get com like their values and their goals and stuff get commandeered and stuff well a lot of people you know that happens to them but um i you know i've been fighting corporations for 40 years yeah. and i've been suing these agencies so probably 20 percent. i've sued almost every one of these agencies dot yeah USDA, Department of Agriculture, EPA, NIH, FDA, DTF, CDC. sue her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I feel like I know better than anybody else about how to unravel the corporate capture. And, you know, I'm not interested in anything. They got nothing they can offer me. Yeah. You know, the only thing I'm concerned with is good government and making sure that our kids, you know, love America the way that I love and have hope for their future. And that's, you know, they're, I mean, it, literally, I can't think of anything that anybody could give me to buy me off. I, there's nothing I want. You know, I have everything that I want. And I just, um, you know, I want to, I, I want to do the right thing. And I, you know, I think there's other people, I think Tulsi's the same way. I don't think she has any personal ambition um, I think she just, you know, she loves our country. And um, I think there's other politicians out there, too, who can't be bought. But most of them can. Do you stay with the Democrats? And, and in fact, the entire political process has been bought. Of running to office is a training school for teaching you how to get bought. Yeah. You know, so it's what it, it seems like. It's like, where are the fucking warriors who want to die, like, for something <laughs> that means something? Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I'm with you. I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't know. We all get, it's all, it's, it's hard to, it's, we live in a place where that's what we've built. It's part of that you, that things can be compromised. Uh, the last question I have is, um, where do, um, if you, how do you know if you are going to stay running with the democratic party or if you have to make another choice? Well, I have to make that choice by October 15th. Okay. So I'm just going to see what they do. If they open up the process, I'll stay in. And then, you know, and then I have to see what I have to see. If they don't close it, then I don't know exactly what I'll do. I'm proud of you, man. I'm just excited to know you've always been, uh, you've always just been a nice guy, man. You've always been, um, 
someone I could rely on. And so I just appreciate uh, you just being willing to come back on and spend time with us and help us learn about um, the election process and stuff. I think even just listening to you helps us, you know, a lot of people like me just learn who aren't as up to, you know, skew on politics. And um, yeah, man, certainly uh, happy to get to spend time with you. And congratulations, man. I'm proud of you. Yo, thanks for having me back. Yeah. And tell your it's boys always I said a pleasure. what's up. It's always a pleasure being with you. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. I'll talk to you soon. Now I'm just floating on the breeze And I feel I'm falling like these leaves I must be cornerstone Oh, but when I reach that ground I'll share this peace of mind I found I can feel it in my bones But it's gonna take